Welcome back to The Big Chat, where we talk about all the ways that brands, businesses, and individuals can get an edge in today's digital world. I'm your host, George Hughes, and I'm the founder and creative director of video agency, Small Films. We help brands to capture their customers' attention with video. My guest today is Mark LaRoost of The Unconventionalists, a training and coaching business set up to help people in leadership roles best serve and manage their employees. He's a renowned public speaker, hosting and speaking at thousands of events worldwide. Not only that, but he also has his own podcast with over 100 episodes and more than 70,000 downloads, inspiring countless people across the world. In this episode, we talk about how important it is for businesses to have purpose when they're trying to make their mark on the world. Mark LaRoost, thank you very much for coming down. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to have you here on the sofa. Mm. So first of all, I just want to take it right back to the beginning, to where it all began. So where did you first start on the path that led you here today? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think looking back now, it's really easy for me actually to pinpoint, and I've done a bit of work around this. Um, and, and I think you have to go all the way back to my years, not, maybe not nursery, but um, definitely preschool, when I was probably around three or four, maybe around four years old, I was in a school play, and um, and I remember because I was I was cast as a dragon, and I wasn't the knight, and I was really upset about that. I was like, "How dare you not cast me as the drag uh, as the knight?" And so it's like one of these typical school plays. I mean, I've got a daughter now, so I can only imagine what it's going to be like going to like these kind of you know performances, and all the parents are there, and. I am supposed to have kidnapped this princess and the knight's supposed to come and kill me and I fall to the ground and save the damsel in distress and you know, the story ends. Uh, but what happened is that when you went for the kill, I had this very dramatic death, you know, kind of like really milked it and everybody started laughing. And I remember, because I still remember viscerally the reaction going, oh, wait a minute, if I do something, I can get a reaction. And so I then got back up and everybody laughed. And so I then, you know, ran around and this poor little kid knight trying to kill me again. And I did this like three or four times until so the teacher had to come in and drag me out and to say like, <laughs> you're dead. And I think in that moment, I realized that uh, how we talk, how we act can, can create emotions in other people. And, and I think that's when I understood that how powerful words and how powerful um, our voices can be uh, when we use them for good. That's fantastic. That is a great Genesis story. I can actually imagine you in this dragon yeah. costume being <laughs> chased around by this little boy. Yeah. Great story. I love that. Mm. So what was next for you? So again, mum was a school teacher for like 35 years. And one of the things she really wanted to get kids to experience was, was theatre. She, she loved the, the thespian arts and she probably wanted to become a, an actress or at least a, a director of plays when she wanted to grow up and... and um, and so she put up school plays, and we lived in France, we grew up in France, and so she was a teacher in France. And, and that meant that she had rehearsals on Wednesdays afternoons and weekends, and she had to do something with my, my, my older brother and I. So instead of, you know, figuring out babysitters, she took us along to these rehearsals, and, you know, um, I had to be like a plant on, on stage or like a bush, you know. And I just remember loving it. I just remember being in this kind of environment of, of kids rehearsing, practicing lines, and again, being on stage and just feeling like, oh, I'm home. My brother hates it. But I hope my brother hates attention. Um, and the, very much the opposite. Uh, but I, I still remember, again, 
The first time that I got on stage, I was the puppet in uh, Bugsy Malone uh, with a ventriloquist, and everybody thought it was a real puppet. And I remember there's the, the 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 energy of the theater sold out and people laughing and, and that stage. So I think, you know, when I look back at what I do today, where, where, whether that's work with entrepreneurs or, or with leaders, it's, you know, how do you find your home, whether that's in front of a small audience or a bigger crowd? How do you find your voice? How, how, do, you, how do you engage people in such a way that they get excited about what you have to say or, or what you're, you're trying to, to sell, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's really bizarre. It took me 32 years to understand what uh, being fearful of public speaking meant. And that's when I gave my TEDx talk. And it wasn't that I was afraid of public speaking. It was, I, was, I had a, a massive imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, I was terrified that I wouldn't do a good enough job. Um, 16 minutes is very short to convey an idea that you're trying to put forward. And for the first time, my partner made me realize this. She was like, well, now you understand what 99.9% of people, humans, normally feel before they go on stage. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that's right. I mean, I think um, for you, you're quite lucky in the sense you're extroverted, yeah. you embrace that, you enjoyed that moment of being on stage mm. and being in front of people. For most people, yeah. that is not the case. 100%. So it's good to know that you can actually be in a situation where, where you face yeah. the same hurdles that yeah. we all face in that yeah. way. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think it was about the TEDx that really <clears throat> yeah, made I think, you feel that way? Well, I think it was, uh, it was a combination of things. I think it's the self-imposed pressure I put myself of the event. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people before they, they, they go and, and speak publicly or they have an event. I think we self-sabotage ourselves even before we've even got there. You know, they often say when you, when you speak to fighters, they say the fights won outside the ring. You know, even before you stepped on, on the mat, you probably already won the battle. And I think a lot of people will put so much pressure on themselves that they go into this panic mode. And, you know, TED or TEDx has a certain reputation. It's potentially going to be viewed by thousands of people. Um, and so I had that. And then there's this whole pressure. Of like and you, you can't bullshit either. You have to actually no. know what you're talking yeah, about. And you know, I, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, there's, you know, there's, I think there are TEDx talks and there are TEDx talks, right? So some people will just wing it, do something and that's great, get a few hundred views, few thousand. My intention was always, I want to do a TEDx talk that's going to help people, serve people in some way that I can be proud of. And, you know, it's just, I think we've just hit half a million views and it hasn't been even two years that it's been online. And that's phenomenal. But it's six months of work. Yeah. Six months of work. Really? Yeah, and we haven't got time to get into the story, but the short version is I had an original TEDx talk, which I practiced for five months, and then 10 days before the actual event, I had a panic attack in terms of I realized that it wasn't good enough, scrapped the whole thing, rewrote a whole new talk, and I had less than a week to practice. Wow. Yeah. And sometimes that's the best, actually. When it's you don't have enough time, yeah. when you overthink things, it can actually make it worse, can't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Amazing. I know the TEDx, is that, it's yeah. the most watched um, Cardiff TEDx, yeah, isn't TEDx, it? Still? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's TEDx fantastic. Cardiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is ironic in a way, because I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't expect it. Um, I, think, I think what you realize is that, like anything in life, if you put in a lot of effort, a lot of love, a lot of yeah. soul into your work, then it, then it shows. And I think a lot of people go, oh yeah, you know, you, you made, it sounds so arrogant, but you, you made it look easy, but it wasn't. It, I keep on saying, you know, hours and hours and years culminated to that moment, mm-hmm. which, which enabled me to be ready to mm-hmm. go on stage. And, and I still, I've got to give a shout out to, uh, you know, a friend of mine called Amrish Shah. When I first did my talk, he was like, can I be honest with you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, 
um, you're better than that, or like you're boring, like it was boring, there were parts of it that were boring, wow. and I thought... that's honest. Well, because he saw me at university, like the last play I ever play, acted in was my first year at university, and I had a bit of a funny kind of character, and he said, there's a part of you that you're not allowing the world to see, which is a much funnier, much more kind of silly, mm -hmm. and, and, and because TED and TEDx originally comes from this concept of, you know, technology, uh, I think it's engineering design, uh, around being quite serious and academic, and I, I went to that mode of like, you know, six people out of, you know, it's very kind yeah. of, uh, and actually, so the first, if you go back and watch my TEDx talk, the first part, I, 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 I perform this completely OTT character of an entrepreneur, like a social media influencer, and I, and I really take the mick out of it. And when I practiced that with friends, no one really laughed. So when I got on stage and I delivered that first line, and people started laughing, I was like, okay, this is going to be all right. And Such that, a my, relief. Par my partner said in the audience, that's when she knew that she could relax. It was going to be okay. It was going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've given a few uh, best man speeches, oh, and gosh. I have to say that that is, it's the only time in your life where yeah. you sort of, if you're not a comedian, you have to be a comedian. Yeah. And, and honestly, the first few laughs, that's when you, you realize, yeah. okay, I'm going to be all right. Yeah. I do have a funny bone in my body. It's yeah. going to be all right. It'll be fine. But it's like, it's like I think it's like, like, like anything. I mean, I did, okay, another example of me being terrified of doing something. <laughs> I held back for 10 years to perform stand-up com comedy. So I lived in South Africa in 2009 and, 2008, beg your pardon, 2008. And I used to hang out with all these stand-up comedians, South Africans, some amazing stand-up comedians, super funny. One became, uh, you know, relatively famous as, as a host of a TV show in America. Oh, no. Uh, Trevor Noah. Yeah, Trevor Noah, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah, he's And so, so I remember seeing the first time I ever saw Trevor was in a tiny little stand-up comedy gig in uh, Joburg. And I remember watching him and going, this guy's amazing. Like, he was mm -hmm. very special. It was a tiny room. Everybody's in stitches. He's, he's switching from Afrikaans to... Uh, all, all different kind of language. Like he was just so yeah. good. And then so I used to hang out with him, used to go for brides, like the barbecues in South mm -hmm. Africa. And I kept on saying, how do you guys do this? And they kept on like, Mark, stop asking, just do it. Yeah. Just get on stage. You'll see, you want, you'll bomb, but you'll get over it. And I was like, no, 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 I couldn't. So for 10 years, I was terrified of doing stand-up comedy. Don't ask me why. Yeah. Like I can make a few people laugh when I do. I mean, you know, you, you've seen me in, in kind of do what I do. So I can make a few people laugh, but stand-up comedy had always been for me this massive mountain of, of just mm -hmm. terrifying mountain because you'd have to go there and people expect you to be funny. Yeah. And if you're not funny, if they you heckle get, you. They heckle you. Mm. And I've seen people get booed off stage. Yeah. And so last year, yeah, it was last year for my birthday. So very, pretty much like a year to this, to this, to this day, right? Um, I'm out, did a I forgot bunch to of, say, yeah. yeah <laughs> Happy yeah, birthday. Congratulations on turning much. another yeah, year. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I was sitting down at a restaurant with my friends and we're all there having a great time. And my partner goes, oh, I've got a surprise for you. And everybody's kind of cheering and there's a box. And I open this box and it's a stack of cards. And she's written, read these cards out loud. And like, everybody's like, ooh. And I start reading them out. It's like, um, on the May, I think it was like on May, whatever, or June 17th, save the date. No, we're not getting married yet. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. and I'm reading these cards are like, I will be performing a stand-up comedy, and I'm just, and everybody's like shouting, like, what? And so she signed me up. Oh, wow. Yeah, she signed me up to a six-week kind of evening course thing, stand-up oh, comedy fantastic. on Thursdays. And I've got a video of it. I think I've actually got a vlog on my YouTube channel, and I'm just completely paralyzed. Well, how did you fear. feel in that exact moment? Well, oh, my Terrified. God. Totally. Oh, God. Totally, but 
it's what I needed. Yeah. It is what I needed. And I spent the worst six weeks of my life, I'm not going to lie, every Thursday I'd go out for three hours and realize just how unfunny I was <laughs> and just how terrible I, I was, how I wasn't a good writer. In co- it was awful. Like, if you think you make your mates laugh mm-hmm. and then suddenly in a room of strangers, like, yeah. that was a bit shit, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was a bit of crap, sorry. Excuse my French. Um, but eventually... I did, I did the night at the Backyard Comedy Club mm-hmm. in Bethnal Green, and I still remember again, I got on stage, I said my first line, I got this first laugh, and then I just eased and relaxed into it. And that it. was it. And, yeah. and are you hooked on it now? Are you going to do some more? So I've done some more. Yeah, I've done, I've done another one at the uh, Museum of Comedy yeah. um, earlier this year, and I've got another gig coming up next week in Funny Fuckers, it's called. Where's that? Uh, God, I shouldn't be saying this, um, but it's okay. This, this should be coming out. Afterwards. It's coming out after. Yeah, yeah. So I just... it's, it's. I think I want to say Camden. Oh, I, might I, to say, to, I might have to come say down Camden. and check it oh, out. Oh God, oh, please don't. Yeah. I'm not that funny. I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we skipped ahead a bit. Yeah. So I want to get. I want to find out a little bit more about you because sure. um, we've talked about sort of you know your 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 time on stage yeah. and how that's helped you with with the stuff you do today yeah. with helping people, but. What, you, you worked for the Movember Foundation, yeah. didn't you? So yeah. tell me about all about that. Yeah, and one thing, I just want to, just want to say something really quickly before, if I forget. I think one thing I've, the kind of the, 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 the older I get or the wiser I get, mm-hmm. I kind of realise that some of the things that actually were gifts might have been seen as disabilities for some. And, and I grew up, so I'm dyslexic, and I grew up in a time where dyslexia wasn't at all like it is today, where there's yeah. much more awareness and there's, mm-hmm. there's structure in place to support people and... And I grew up in a, in a French environment that was extremely archaic and very backward thinking, very kind of punish oriented and always made wrong. Like my mm-hmm. entire childhood, I grew up being made, feeling like I'm too much or I'm not enough. I can't sit still. I can't do math. I can't spell. I was held back a year. Mm-hmm. Eventually I was kicked out at 16 from my school to go oh, to wow. a different kind of education system. Told I would never you know, amount to anything. And the reason why I say that is I think today... It's shaped me in terms of how I see the world and how I address problems and how I see things differently because I have to adapt the world to me and, and I have to adapt myself to the world, I guess. So how that links to November, it was, I had the typical kind of journey, I guess, where mm-hmm. you, would, you would say I, I um, went to university, got, you know, got a good degree and I was meant to have a good job and then work that career ladder mm-hmm. until I get the golden watch and retire and then maybe enjoy life, you know, as yeah. everyone's been sold. But what happened is within the first two years of being in this corporate job, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this hand to heart, when you go from being a poor student to suddenly having this lifestyle, I mean, I went from riches to rags. That's my story. I didn't, I didn't go, you know, from the sense that I started off with this career, which was crazy. Even still today when I tell people, it just sounds insane. You know, we had our driver, we had a cook, we had uh, insane accommodation. When I lived in South Africa, we had, you know, tennis court, swimming pool, bar area, um, we had this, we used to hobnob with all these movers and shakers around the world, meeting presidents of countries, ministers, the whole thing. Wow. And I was deeply unhappy. And so when I left that, I started a company with a friend, online tailoring suit company. We ran out of money. I needed cash. So I worked for a business school where I learned a whole bunch of really amazing things. And what happened is I started thinking, well, this could be me. I mean, I could be sitting behind a desk now for, for a long period of time. Or I could do something different. And if I'm going to do something different, a conventional CV is not going to work. And today, this does not sound pioneering in any kind of way now. But back in 2011, no one were doing video CVs. Mm-hmm. No one. It just wasn't a thing. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't no, I mean, no one. I, th- I think there no. might be like there might even one or two online, something like that. 
And so I had this idea of, I'm going to do a video CV, and that's how I'll be able to talk about what I do and what I'm about. Mm. I managed to convince two friends, Dennis Duvochel, to do a website called thedreamjobwouldbenice.com. I think it's still probably online. And, and Mickey Mau, who uh, is a filmmaker, and, and yeah. can you film the film? And so I convinced them, and we did the video CV. Um, and everybody told me I was crazy. Everybody said it would never work. And what I didn't realize is that when it's on YouTube, it's public. And so right. everybody can see it. And the little caveat is I'd borrow the keys of my office to be able to record my video CV over the weekend. So a tip <laughs> to people who want to do a video CV, don't record your video CV in your current office if you intend not to get fired. And then put it public, and then put it publicly public. on yeah, YouTube yeah. so everyone can see it. Exactly. Yeah. So everyone's, And then it just went viral. I mean, one of those kind wow. of crazy yeah. you know, serendipity moments where... Mm -hmm. People were tweeting Oprah, like who I didn't know, like tweeting Oprah saying, you should hire this guy and Tony Robbins. And it was just mad. And so I tweeted that CV to Adam Garoni, who was the CEO and co-founder at November at the time. And he was like, oh, really cool. Are you based in London? And I said, no, but I could be, say, for the right reasons if I work for November, you know, winky, winky face, that kind of thing. Yeah. Long story short, I got a job interview with uh, JC, one of the co-founders, and he gave me the job on the spot. Amazing. Uh, it was just mad, and so... What was it about that video CV that do you think that made it go viral? Were you being, were you being cheeky? Yeah, were you I being think, cheesy? Yeah, were I you think, being, was it no, parody? Think, was it, what was it? I get emails Serious? still to this day, like so many people still message me about video CVs and can I help them and all this stuff, and I always kind of say the same thing. It's like, don't do, because a, a lot of people do the same format as my mm -hmm. video CV. Like I've had so many copycats of my video oh, CV right. and it's great. And I'm very inspired. I really yeah. am that, you know, it's great that they've managed to use a format that works for them and then mm -hmm. if it works great. But I think what, first of all, I, it, was, it was quite innovative in that way that not yeah. a lot of people did that. I think the other thing is it was a mix of humor yeah. and a mix of, of my experience. Mm -hmm. Because I was so frustrated because at a young age I was made director at the age of 24 managing teens living in all these countries, when I'd go for a job interview, like, oh, you're gonna be bored. I can't give you this amount of responsibility mm -hmm. given your age. Mm -hmm. I can't give you someone 40 to manage. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be really annoyed. So mm -hmm. I was really frustrated by what you see on paper is not who I am. Yeah. So I think I just managed to convey my personality. I also made sure to focus on what I could do for companies and organizations. How could I solve mm -hmm. problems? And, um, and there's, this, there's a scene, if you haven't seen it, there's, there's a, there's a I think there's a kind of a, a bit of a, a, I won't spoil it, but for people watching this, if you're watching this, I do a gesture at the end. Okay. And that gesture, I think, won a lot of people's hearts. Right. Um, and full transparency, the, the original company I really wanted to work for was Innocent. Oh, okay. I really wanted to work for Innocent. I just had a thing for Innocent. Yeah. You know, I, I, they were in their peak at that point, well, weren't they? The, was, yeah, they were really 2003, the 2004 of, yeah. was when I fell in love with Innocent. When mm -hmm. they, where, I don't even remember, but you'd, you'd take a bottle, you'd put it upside down and it said, stop staring at my bottom. I don't remember that. So they actually. had these. They had this amazing. I remember copy. they used to get because my um, they used to have uh, old ladies knit yes, they little, still do. little hats for it. Because my grandma said she was knitting this tiny little hat. Yeah. I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "Oh, we're knitting for charity," and she yeah. didn't know what it was about. But yeah. I, I realised that it was for innocent smoothies. The, yeah. yeah, the big knit, and so and then I think they replied saying, "We love your video CV, but you haven't got any FMCG experience." And yeah. I was like, "Okay, that's all right, that's fine." And so one of my friends said you should totally apply it to Movember. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's crazy. I don't have any charity background. I didn't even know it was an actual foundation. Yeah. And yeah, there you go, 2012, quit the job without having a contract in place, went with my mum to Australia, as like a pilgrim. Yeah. Um, and joined in 2012, and I stayed country manager for four years, where yeah. I helped raise 2.8 million euros for men's health. 
We've got 110,000 people sign up and yeah, win a bunch of awards every amazing. year. So yeah. Amazing. That's amazing. 2.8 million. Yeah. That's a huge number, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty mad. It's uh, yeah. I've not I've not quite um, indulged in the Movember yeah. uh, thing. You yet, should. But maybe got, I need got, to. I've got good facial hair. Well, well the problem is, I feel like I'll already, I'll be cheating because I've already got the facial hair to start with. You're meant to start from you scratch. Start, aren't yeah, you? yeah. You start with, like clean shaven yeah. on the first of November, exactly. and then you let your mustache grow for thirty days. Yeah. yeah. So, so you can't kind of grow it out too nice. You know? No. I mean, the theory is, if you want to play the game, that the, the purest rules is you start clean shaven on the first. Yeah. I think that's still the case. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's got to yeah, be yeah. the case, surely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, I'm assuming you enjoyed your time there it was amazing you there for four years yeah know? it was honestly i can still say this hand to heart it was some of the best years of my life i mean the people that they managed especially now that i do a lot of work in companies around culture and entrepreneurs around vision purpose and meaning i realized just how a lot of elements were so right in terms mm -hmm. of the culture the talent the people were so passionate extremely motivated hard driven um you know uh, trustworthy and it was an amazing cause, you know, trying to stop men and, and, and boys dying. And when you have something like that so clear that drives you, then you'll move mountains. And, and we were very fortunate to have a great culture, have a great branding. People really warmed up to November. And, you know, and I did a lot of speaking, whether that's in a bar, whether that's in someone's office, whether that's someone's conference. I mean, I was on the road like a lot. And um, just to be able to see our community and, and actually how it was one of the favorite months of the year where they had real team morale within the company coming together and i think that's where the idea of me going well actually why shouldn't every company why shouldn't every organization be able to have a really compelling purpose that drives the organization that mm -hmm. glues people together towards a common purpose a common mission a common goal yeah and that's how the unconventionalist kind of Kind of came morning. about yeah so definitely uh, that kind of inspired you and you could see yeah. that it was a, a really important thing to have a really good culture yeah and I, th and I think you know I often say this I don't know if I've said this publicly before but um, I could have stayed at November for many years and it would have been amazing uh, you know in the sense that I would have continued to do some great work but I think what I felt at one point was it's a bit like if you hang out with your older brother your older sister mm. with their friends you could do that but if you want to go off and make your own friends, make your own kind of impact, then you're going to have to break away at some point. Yeah. And so that's when I thought, I want to go off on my own and start my own company and, and, and do that and take what I've learned, be grateful for what I've learned, and then go and help other organizations and companies better inspire and lead the people. So what happened next then? So after November, was that when you started to kind of go yeah. on your own? Or? Well, I think, I think, and if you go back to my TEDx talk again, I talk about the reality of the entrepreneurial journey, which I think a lot of people don't realize what it really means. I think I had this great idea. I think I thought it's going to be easy. You know, I mean, I, I did pretty well in November. You know, I was, I was getting good results. And, um, and throughout my whole career, I spent almost 10 years in the private, corporate, non-for-profit sector predominantly in sales and fundraising. When I was at INSEAD, I was generating 6 million euros of revenue per year. You know, so I, I, I thought, easy, it's gonna be easy for me to go out there and do this. A whole different story, when it was about my company, me. I mean, I, I still remember, I haven't released this vlog yet, but I'm gonna do it one day. I think I found myself on a Friday afternoon. You know, I recently took a mortgage out before I quit my job. I'm sitting on my flat on the floor and I'm crying going, what the hell have I done? Like, all this money that I'd saved is just drying up. Clients aren't responding as quickly as I thought they would. Yeah. And, um, and it all started off because of a podcast. I mean, this is the irony of it all is that in 2015, I had this idea of, oh, it'd be cool to broadcast conversations with people I have because I think it could inspire and help mm -hmm. other people. 
I mean, podcasting wasn't what it was today, five years ago. And um, the next thing you know, I launched this podcast, it gets a bit of momentum, and I thought, well, yeah, I'll do this full time and mix my coaching and, and podcasting. And, um, and I think the first kind of big gig I got was uh, Escape the City, we're an organization trying to help people change mm -hmm. uh, careers and get them into more meaningful careers. And they were looking for a, a co-leader for one of their uh, accelerators called uh, Escape the City. Well, I don't know what they call it now. Escape Tribe. I don't know what they yeah. call it today. But anyway, and so Sophie Miller brought me on as 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 the co-leader, and she's a phenomenal facilitator and human altogether. She's mm -hmm. at Sanctus now, um, and so we led for twelve weeks a group of thirty plus incredible humans, from accountants, lawyers, bankers, to advertisers and charity workers, mm -hmm. and. And we kind of co-created this program around taking them on this journey of really understanding what your values are about, mm -hmm. uh, what is it you want to create in the world, what impact you want to have, what's your kind of mission and purpose, and, and understanding why you probably feel a little bit uneasy in your job. And after that, I think it just started spiraling in terms of continuing working with entrepreneurs, leaders, uh, General Assembly, and then it just kind of moved. And then what was really surprising for me was, I think, in 2017, maybe early 2017, into it, so I'm going to go shout out to them, reached out to me and said, could you come and give a talk to our employees? And it was really weird for me because I was back then like very much a coach helping people start businesses and, you know, finding meaning and purpose and, you know, stick the middle finger to, your, to the man and all this kind of stuff. And I said, you do know I wrote a book about like how to quit your job, right? And she said, no, no, but we need someone that, that can relate to yeah. as opposed to bringing someone who's like in a suit and giving seven steps to success and productivity. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I gave a talk about finding meaning and purpose in your work and what I wished I'd known and I'd learned before I quit November. And it went down really well. And that's when I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Actually, companies are made of people. And people still need to be seen, heard, and appreciated, no matter where they are. And some people think that becoming an entrepreneur is the only way to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think you can do that absolutely by working in an organization. You do not need to start a, your own company in order to feel fulfilled. And so that's where I went, that kind of crossroad, and I started working towards it, which is now Ministry of Purpose, which is working with organizations around helping them clarify their purpose, uh, helping them build leaders that are equipped for the future of, of meaning of, of work. And it's been really fascinating to have both worlds mm -hmm. of one foot in the entrepreneurial world with entrepreneurs and disruptors and innovators and and, and, and learning from them and then going to companies who really want to have a, a more mission-driven kind of approach to the organization, really want to put their people first, and, and who also believe in profit, because I believe in profit too, right? Yeah. And use that, and the metaphor I use often is a bit like being, and it sounds really pretentious, but like a university professor, mm -hmm. where you have your classroom and you have your business, and you can really bridge both. Yeah. So I think a lot of the time, startups and entrepreneurs can be the, the birthplace, the bedrock for innovation when it comes down to retention, engagement, um, development packages, and then you can go into companies and say, you've got the structure in place, you've got the finances in place. Now the biggest challenge you have is people retention. Mm -hmm. Let's look at that, let's see what we can do, and that's been a lot of fun, yeah. and I've got to work with some amazing organizations, so I'm very lucky. It, it feels like in today's world, it's really <clears throat> important to give purpose to your employees. Yeah. You know, people don't, they don't take jobs um, they take jobs for different reasons yeah. these days. It's not just, 
I'm going to do a, 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 a job for 40 years that I hate just yeah. so I can get a pension and make yeah. enough money so I can you know, go on a holiday and then retire. It's not like that anymore, is it? Yeah, well, so here's the interesting thing. I get brought in a lot to do work with millennials. So a lot of the companies bring me in to do work around millennial leadership, leading millennials, equipping leaders to better lead and inspire millennials because uh, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's a really interesting topic. I think most millennial experts tend to be non-millennials, which I think is great, but also ironic uh, in a sense. And so one of the things I always say when I go into companies and, and when I first introduce the kind of concept of it, I say, well, in order to understand a generation, you need to understand the context in which it grew up and the environment in which it grew up and what are the big events that shaped its, its culture, its DNA and, and, and value system. And if you look at millennials, I think one of the things that's really underrated in terms of what impacted us as a generation is that for those of us who graduated around 2007, 2008, we got hit with the global financial crisis. You know, one of the, what economics say, basically one of the worst financial crises since the 1930s, Big Depression. And what happened are twofold. One, it meant that financially we were worse off than any other generation in the past. I mean, from 2009 to 2014, there was a depreciation in salaries by 14%. And it's still hasn't recovered, still no. behind 7% than it used to be pre-crisis. But more than that, and I can speak from a personal experience, my dad had worked for like 25 plus years in this company, right? He worked weekends, he worked evenings, took minimum holiday. And 2008 was made redundant from one day to the next. And what I saw was, and I think what my generation saw, what our generation saw was, oh, this promise that if I give you my life and soul to work, then I will get loyalty in return and I will be able to work here for 30 years and then retire. That was gone. It was gone. The promise the was illusion broken. The illusion had yeah. The trust in, in, yeah. in, in, in what we used to believe as trustworthy big institutions as banks mm -hmm. disappeared. And so what happened is we go, oh, if we can no longer trust banks and big institutions to, to care and protect us, like I trust my friends, I trust my family, but I can't trust my CEO and I certainly can't trust my business that I'm working with. Then it became, what do I really want to do? Yeah. Because if I'm going to do something and I might lose the job one day to the next, it might as well be something that I enjoy. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't understand that, especially when you look at older generations around calling millennials entitled, lazy, unfocused. I've experienced everything but the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. I, I do not believe that that's true. I actually think that there are certain things, 100%, that as millennials we need to work on and, and be better at. You know, patience and boredom is two things that we've just forgotten how to be with. But actually, if you find a way to enroll your people by saying, look, this is why what we're doing matters, and this is how we need you to help us get there, and here's how what you're doing is helping us get there. If you can get that right in your company, then I think you're going to have a much more unleashed workforce than mm -hmm. if you just said, here's your salary, do your job, just because I said so. And I guess ultimately it's about, for the company, it's all about attracting the right yeah. talent and retaining that yeah. talent so that you don't get that churn <clears throat> that's so right. commonplace now. Well, I think one of the challenges I often say, uh, you often get talent through your PR, but you retain talent through your culture. And so a lot of companies can look great on the outside and have great branding, great messaging, and you think, I'd love to work for them. And then you go and work for them and you realize, ooh, who you say you were externally is very different than who you are internally. Mm. And, and often I'll get a question from one of the managers or executives, you know, when I go and do talks at conferences or, or workshops, they'll say, so how do I get people to trust me more? I want my people to trust me. Mm -hmm. and, I, you know, or, and I'll say, I always say the same thing. I say, well, here's a really quick hack. Might not be easy, but it's what's needed. Um, narrow the gap between 
who you say you are and who you actually are, and narrow the gap between what you say you'll do and what you actually do. Narrow those two things, and your team will be able to trust you more. The problem is, we often live this two-faced facet of, I say this, or I say this is who I am, but everybody knows I'm not. And, and because in today's kind of fast-paced digital world, everything's transparent. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't hide anymore. People will go on, I think it's Glass Windows, and there's like websites yeah. where you can actually rate your managers, you can rate, you know, you can share your salary. Mm-hmm. And then we've looked at the Me Too movement, we looked at, you know, gender equality. I mean, so much has changed mm-hmm. over the last, you know, just a couple of years that is, is redefining the new world of work. And I think people who aren't paying attention are at risk of hemorrhaging talent. Yeah. And I think companies who embrace purpose, companies who embrace the concept of, okay, it's not about neglecting profit. It's about where's my balance between purpose, people, and profit. If it really always leans towards profit, my decision-making is all about maximizing profit, then you're gonna lose people who don't believe that that should be the case. Another massive myth is that as millennials, we don't believe in, in profit. It's not true. We understand that sustainability to business is core to its vitality. Um, but I, I, I get very excited because I get to work with a wide range of, of organizations, some very old established financial banks with some really cool, innovative uh, companies like People Against Dirty who manage Method and, and mm-hmm. eCover. And there's a real thirst for we may have a blind spot. Mm-hmm. We may need some help with engaging our people and we, we think we do our best and people don't seem to be responding to what we're doing but we know we could be doing more and I think those are the leaders I want to work with because you can work with that you can go okay um, so you know the seven values you've got on your wall cool without looking at them can you repeat them yeah. and then let me go and talk to your people and ask them which, which one of these are you most proud of which one do you think is a joke and I do this and people will tell me I said that is a joke transparency does not exist here Okay, and then you go back to basics. It's like, okay, what does it actually mean for you to be here? Let's shape that. And so you, you just do some, some cool work with, with, with teams and leaders and they redefine what it means to them. And then they'll usually come up with three core values that everybody can name in the company. No longer like the 11 different you know, hit marks that we have on a mug or we have on a t-shirt or on the wall. Um, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's really interesting that. And I think that I always, we deal with lots of different companies all the time, yeah. of course, and we're, we're meeting new companies all the time. Some, some we end up working with, some we don't. Sure. And I always say that when you come into contact with people who, you know, they could be any level within that company, mm-hmm. but if you, if you have like a bad vibe off them, yeah. if, you know, if there's, you're like, I can't work out these guys, it's just sort of there's something not right, yeah. you can guarantee that is coming from the top. You know, yeah. it's being, the example's being set from the top leaders, yeah. and it could be literally from the CEO of the company yeah. down to the managers who are then responding to his or her vibe, yeah. Yeah. you know, then to the next layer down. Yeah. So how do you navigate that? Because I feel like if you're coming into a company and you're trying to yeah. find their sense <clears> of purpose, but you might find a few problem individuals yeah. that are causing the issues in the first place. So I don't work with a company where leaders don't have skin in the game. Simple as that. If the leaders aren't in the room, I'm not working with them. It's, it's, you just can't, exactly what you said, yeah. you're so right. I think I did previously in the past, I'd go in, and I won't name the company, but I had this company bring, bring me in to do some work, and I'm in there in the room with the people, and the, literally the first thing they say is, look around, do you see any leaders, any executives in this room? And I'm like, yeah, no, no, they're not. And they're like, how do you think that makes us feel? When this is meant to be a session for us to come together as a team. And so after that, after that experience, I said, never, never again. And, and so when I work with an organization, I said, cool, where's the CEO? Is she going to be coming in the room or is he going to be coming in the room? And, and, and 
on the leadership on, on board. And so some of the best results I've seen or some of the really cool, exciting work I've done is when actually it's the CEO or it's the, the director of the MD, who, you know, she brought me in or he brought me in and, and we can work from that because, you know, Jocko Willinks, who's the author of the dichotomy of, of leadership and, and extreme ownership, you know, talks about every single problem in your business is a leadership problem. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of humility for leaders to go, oh yeah, that's on me. I can blame you. I can say that you did it wrong, etc., etc. But that's on me. And so I, I went to the IPG Spring Conference a couple of weeks ago to give a talk. And one of the big questions I had was around, because one of the things I believe, one of the messages I have is, being yourself is good for business. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a few of us in this industry are, are really trying to get that message out there saying that actually what people want more than anything is to be able to be themselves, whether that's at work or at home or with their friends. You know, we've got so many masks mm-hmm. on that we've been laid on throughout our life that by the end of our second or third decade, we don't even know who we are anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and some friends you might go, but you're so different at work than you are at home. And, and so the message I was trying to convey at this conference was being yourself is good for business and letting your people bring their full selves to work will impact positively your bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, uh, questions I had was very much around, get it, Mark, but what if they want to come with blue hair and ripped jeans and, you know, mess with our professionalism? And so, you know, I kind of laughed and I said, I so get what you're saying. And I said, the first <laughs> thing you want to do is, um, if that's important to you, then it's on you. Say that, hey, I'm so sorry I failed to explain to you some of the standards we have around this organization, mm-hmm. and that's on me, yeah. and I apologize. Now, I love that you bring your colorful self, I love all this, and let me explain to you why this might not work. You know, and then, and then kind mm-hmm. of go into enrolling and explaining, right, as opposed to saying, why are you wearing a pink shirt? Yeah, you shirt, can't Lord? do this, because that's do not that. the convention. Because we, yeah. And then I'll say, but why? We don't do things because like that. Because we don't do here. this, that's yeah. exactly that. And so the biggest mistake I find is that people find, again, you know, millennial, Gen Z, probably uh, difficult to manage, which I read as, challenge the status quo or just questioning. Mm-hmm. And I think when people get questioned, it can often feel like we're being questioned on authority. And that's why I say it takes a lot of humility, a lot of courage for you to go, hey, you're right. Um, Ari Dignan taught me this, the author of Brave New Work. So if I look to my right, there's a boardroom meeting and there's a table and there's usually nine chairs around it, mm-hmm. right? Eight chairs, nine chairs. Why? And if you challenge that, is that, that means that we're all gonna be sitting down. That means it's probably gonna be boring at some point and that we're all gonna have to wait our turn to talk. Why, what, what if we got rid of the table? What if we got rid of the chairs? What would be different then? And so suddenly you start seeing innovation happening and there's this big movement around the difference between culture fit and, and culture addition. So we have this tendency to go, are you a good culture fit? Will you, will you yeah. fit in? You know, and it's great, but it can become a bias to discriminate different opinions, different mm-hmm perspectives and then you end up having the same mold as opposed to having people who go actually George, I don't think this is where you should go yeah and you might go okay so I feel challenged but tell me why and then you go you're right I didn't think about that and you can't have that if you don't surround yourself by smarter people with different perspectives and opinions about the world uh, values are core and fundamental mm-hmm. right but but different perspectives are important so if you were going to give um, sort of a bit of advice to yeah. any any brand, it could be, you know, any business really, small, yeah. big, yeah. who were thinking about trying to improve the, um, the overall sort of uh, yeah. atmosphere within their workplace yeah. and kind yeah. of improve people's outlook. How, yeah. What do you think would be the key things they need to start looking yeah. at? Yeah, the first one I said, care as much as you people as you care about getting new customers. 
okay, then care as much as retaining your people as you care about retaining your customers. I mean, that's the first. I know it sounds so fundamental, but I've seen so many people pull so much budget in marketing and PR and sales, all externally based, and totally neglect talent at home. And I think it's about re, like remembering, I guess, that without your people, you have no business. I mean, sure, you can be a one-man band or a one-woman band, and yeah, I mean, you know, you can, you can do all right. But ultimately, without people, you cannot achieve what you're trying to achieve. So that's the first mm-hmm. thing. The second thing I'd say is actually, whatever you do internally will spill out externally, right? So people who go, oh, but how will that impact the bottom line? Well, it's very simple. Um, people who are on purpose, people who have a mission, people who are happier, who feel that they can bring their full selves to work, will be nicer to the phone on people they're speaking to, will be nicer to their colleagues, will be nicer to potential customers. And that's just gonna be felt and, 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 and kind of spilled over. So first thing is that, just adopt a different mindset around, okay, this is actually important for a business because if we do this right, then it'll spill over. Then, then the thing I'll say, get together with your people, not just you and your co-founders or just you and the leadership team, and, and really ask them like, what are we doing here? And, and, and why does it matter? And really kind of let people say, and you could start off by saying, why is it that you joined this company in the first place? What excited you when you started off this job? What was it about this mission that, and are we still honoring that? Or have we changed? And then you can go, okay, so why is what we're doing important? What if, imagine if you went out of business today, who would miss you? Mm-hmm. That's what you need to ask yourself. Like, who would we not be serving by stopping our business? Who would we, be neglecting if we don't do this this work and really get clear about that because once you do that then you can go how does your role help us get to that right so if you understand I mean one of the fastest ways to feel a bit more fulfilled in your work is often I don't see how what I do in here impacts the person that we're trying to help so imagine if I'm in the editing room okay mm-hmm. I'm in a production company <clears throat> I'm sitting 12 hours staring at my screen I don't understand how what I'm doing is gonna make a difference to our final customer. Whereas, as a leader of an organization, it's your responsibility to help people see how what their work does makes an impact. So that could be either you go out to the screening when you show your client the final work, they get to be in the room and they get Mm -hmm. to see their faces. They get to speak with a client. Or that's you going to someone's company and you see that video being projected inside the world company and you're seeing the results. That's that's just just like a really easy kind of win Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people a lot of people neglect. Um, I think if, I don't want to overload it, but I yeah. think if you start with that, just clarify. Getting people to, to every person within that organization yeah. to understand how they're contributing <clears throat> to the overall goal yeah. of the, the business it's, and of the clients. And yeah. There are three questions that everybody should be able to answer. <clears throat> what do we do? Why does it matter? And how am I helping make that happen? The first two questions, everyone should have a universal answer. Everyone should have the same answer. What do we do and why does it matter? The third question, everybody had, should have a different kind of tailored mm-hmm answer that and um, in terms of finding a company's sort of why yeah that's uh, that's a difficult one yeah you know and I think a lot of people struggle with that <clears throat> how do you how do you go about helping them with that yeah I mean it, it, it is and it isn't I think it's I think it's like anything if you make it into like this big massive mountain that you have to climb and it has to be this epic kind of you know uh, sticker that you're gonna put on the wall and that everyone's gonna adopt it becomes really overwhelming mm-hmm. and I think Simon Sinek's um, TEDx talk around start yeah, with why it's, it's great. great, it's brilliant. And I think it's also caused a lot of people to question that what they do doesn't matter because they haven't figured out their why yet. And I think more people um, are closer to 
why they do what they do than they think. I think it just takes a bit of perspective. Yeah. So the first of the question, you might go like, why did we start this in the first place? Go back to the origin story. I think that's always a great place to start by saying, you know, I experienced terrible service yeah. or I was there and I saw, I mean, you know, this idea that entrepreneurship is whatever they, you know, media is saying today, entrepreneurship is just very simply solving a problem. So finding my why is what problem are we solving? Yeah. What is the problem that we see that needs to be solved? And why does that problem need to be solved? Why does it matter? It's as simple as that. If you go back to that original kind of concept of why do we create this company? Why do we exist? It often comes back to answering the question, what are we solving? Yeah. You know, what are we solving here as a mm-hmm. team? And, and, and can I get you um, excited about it? So for example, Ministry of Purpose, right? Our purpose is to eradicate career misery in the workplace. It's that simple. And so our team gets excited behind that because it's something that we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. Um, when you look at, you know, Gallup 2011, 2012 study, around 87% of employees worldwide feel emotionally disconnected from their work. There's a real problem. And, and, and I do believe that it doesn't have to be. Now, one of the things that you'll often hear me talk about is, you know, it's great to have uh, fresh fruit bowls, yoga classes, you know, kumbachan tap, ping pong tables, and, you know, bean bags. It's great. But as you'll hear everyone say, after a while, it becomes like, okay, but what else? You know, that could just mm-hmm. be like a, a plaster. Mm-hmm. What you really need to figure out is what drives you. And then <clears throat> I haven't got, we haven't got time to go into this, but one of the things uh, I love sharing is, is Tom Bilu, who is the co-founder of Quest Bars. It was the number two Inc. 500 fastest growth, growing companies. And one of the things he says is when you hire someone, he goes, when I'm a most selfish self, and when you're at your most selfish self, can we still serve each other? Meaning, I don't want to be in conflict with reality. You're probably going to be here a couple of years. I mean, the average millennial will have 17 different jobs, three completely different careers. Okay? So if you understand that as a leader, you go, look, I understand that your life plan is not to be here for the next 20 years. If it is, great. But at the same time, I want you to be able to move on and grow and, you know, and you go, what is it that you really want to do? Imagine I was your mate at a bar. You're not here to impress me. You're not here to mm-hmm. say something that I'm going to, you know, ju- what do you really want to do? And your, your, your team might say, actually, I really want to write a book. I want to be a novelist, you know, and you might go, that's awesome. So what are some of the things that you need to learn how to do as a novelist that, you know, are going to be important to you? Well, I'm going to need that, you know, how to, how to, how to understand storytelling, how to understand character building, how to understand, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then you go, well, it turns out that you know, we're recruiting right now for our social media position and we need someone that can understand the avatar of our, of our ideal customers that we're trying to serve. We want to understand storytelling better so we can really convey what we're trying to do in a way that makes sense and excites people. Do you think you can learn that here? And then would you be happy to then go off and, and do this? In your... So it's kind of this idea that, you know, the Jerry Maguire style, help me, help you, help me, yeah. right? But when you have that conversation, it's a very different dynamic, I find, between saying... Hey, I want you to marry me. We've just, we're going to date now for a couple of days, but I want you to marry me. And if you're not willing to marry me, I'm not interested in you. And then suddenly this big pressure happens and we yeah. start lying, we start pretending. Whereas they go, look, I don't want you to be here in three years. Imagine, just completely radical. Imagine he said, I don't want you to be here in three years. I want you to go up to somewhere much bigger, better than here. Mm. My job is to make sure that by the time you leave here, you're a better person. And I want you to leave this company in a better place than you found it. I mean, that's my, that my, that my that's one. That's a great... But my one Great message to leaders is this. Message, yeah. one, I always say, but I say this all the time in my talks and seminars. I always say, what if your mission as a leader, the only mission you had, was to leave your people in a better place than you found them? And what if you, 
as someone working in an organization, your only purpose was to leave this organization in a better place than you found it. How different would we take responsibility, mm-hmm. you know? And the other thing is, you know, as, as a leader of an organization, you'll know this, you're responsible for people. They're humans, you know, their sons, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their, and we some, somehow don't know why this happens, and it really is a pet hate for me, we forget that. Mm-hmm. We come to work and suddenly we pretend like we're not humans anymore. We pretend like we don't have to care about people anymore. I'm not saying that you have to then not make difficult conversations and not make difficult mm-hmm. um, choices. We all have to. You yeah. know, there are some economic factors that come into play. But I think I wish that people would be a little bit more human, a little bit more real and, and create an environment that allows the people to bring their mm-hmm. full self to work. That's, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good message to kind of get across. I definitely think, I, I completely am on board with all of yeah. that stuff. I think it's, um, you know, we talked a lot about millennials and I think yeah. that um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sort of intrigued to, to know a bit more about the difference between millennials. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm generation X. X. Yeah. Uh, my parents are baby, baby boomers. boomers. Yeah. So, you know, my dad worked in, you know, for one company for yeah. pretty much his entire working career, 40 odd years. Yeah. Uh, I've I worked in one industry, you know, pretty much the entire way through my working yeah. career until I started um, the business. Uh, most of my friends have had a few jobs, but they're you know they kind of yeah. life is at places. You know, the the millennial is is who is making up the majority of the workforce yeah. now. Of course, totally different outlook. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the key kind of markers of like, what is it? I mean, I wow. know it's really like, hard. How, how long, how it's long, very how hard long to pigeonhole, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, but like, what's, so, okay, what so just, just a couple of things. So first of all, um, one of the reasons why I love talking about millennials is that by, there's a Deloitte study that came out, by 2025, 75% of the workforce will be millennials. Mm. So it's no longer a question of like, should we talk about millennials? It's like, no, we, we need to have a better conversation around how do we better unleash uh, talent millennials. So. Like anything in life, it's very difficult to make generalizations, right? I can give you my opinion, my perspective, my thoughts. It doesn't mean it's the truth or it's the blanket of, of, all, the, of all our generation. So yeah, so the first thing is that there are two different generations with the millennials. The first one is what I would call the analog millennials, born in the 1980s. Now, most uh, academics and research groups can't agree on when millennials are actually born. It tends to be early 1980s. I would say the, the earliest I'm ready to go and winning to is 1982. But it tends to be between 82 84, and then it'll go up till late, you know, 1990s, early 2000. But let's say, for argument's sake, 82 to 2000, right? And so, people like me who were born in the 80s, I remember a world without internet. I remember a world without phone. I remember a world where my activity on the weekend was going to hang out with my mates and we didn't have anything else to distract us, right? But then you look at millennials born in the 1990s, it's a, they, they never knew, uh, growing up as adolescents, a world without digital without internet. I mean, the internet came in the 1990s, prolific, right? And so, first of all, you need to understand that because my team, my majority of the people on my team, they're all in their mid-20s, early 20s, kind of that kind of range. So that's the first thing. When you understand that, you're okay, but two different types. Then what you need to understand is um, it's unprecedented for any generation to have access to the kind of technology that we have today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm probably speaking you know, rubbish, but I'm pretty sure that the technology we have in our phone would equal the technology that we needed to put a man on the moon. 100%. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's, it's insane. It's you've, got, you've got everything in your pocket there. So, yeah. here's, what, here's, what, here's what I think uh, I wish that more people understood. First of all, what used to be reserved purely to pizza delivery services is now everywhere. So you could call a pizza, it'd be delivered in 30 minutes. I mean, that was pretty revolutionary. It was amazing. But nothing else, really, you could call and come that fast. 
And so what happened is that suddenly you have every product or service that's available to you instantly. Like you probably heard about this term instant gratification. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that through our mobile devices, through apps, we now have access to pretty much anything we want pretty much instantly. You know, you look at Netflix, you can watch any kind of TV series, films on demand, you don't have to wait, you can binge, etc. You're looking at, oh, a restaurant doesn't deliver, no problem, you go through Deliveroo, you get your food delivered. Oh, you, you, you want to get the latest iPhone, but you don't want to queue at Apple, no problem, go on TaskRabbit and hire someone to queue for you. You don't want to do laundry, no problem, click on this app, they'll come and pick it up. To, I mean, you get the point, yeah. right? So it becomes to the point where everything's instant. Everything's instant. Amazon Prime. I've, I booked, I've got a client, a big boot camp session tomorrow with a client. I wanted to buy a few books for him. Went on Amazon this morning. Yeah. They'll be delivered tonight. Yeah, it's insane. It's crazy, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. The problem is there are two things that you still haven't found an app or a hack for, and that is meaningful relationships and fulfilling careers. You cannot find a way to hack those two. It just hasn't happened yet, at least. And so with this idea of instant gratification comes another problem, and you've probably heard about this before, but in order to understand this, you need to understand addiction, and addiction works the same no matter what the crutch, okay? Mm -hmm. And the way it works is that when you get a release of dopamine, your pleasure center gets uh, completely flooded, and your receptors go, we like that, okay? The problem is that if the effort that you put in to get the reward is minimal, your hippocampus, your learning brain goes, oh, we like that, mm -hmm. we, want, we want more of that. And so you get triggered to get more of it. So whether that's alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, sex, or social media, mm -hmm. it's, it acts the same. So every time we get a pin, every time we get a like, every time we get a comment, every time we get a retweet, whatever it is, we get a rush of dopamine that, that floods a pleasure center that says, Ooh, we like this, we want more. The problem is, like anything with addiction, anything to do with pleasure centers, the more you get, the more you need, right? To be able mm -hmm. to get the same kind yeah. of dose. And so what's happened is that we grew up as a generation where we are now looking at our phones as a coping mechanism to how we feel. So this gets a bit deep. But what I believe is that often we have no longer been trained or we no longer learn how to be just with ourselves. Yeah. And so when you look at addiction clinics and we look at social media detoxification centers, what they actually learn is how to be bored again. How to be bored. How to be bored again. Yeah. I mean, I mean when was the last time mm -hmm. that you were waiting for someone to come at a restaurant and you didn't pull your phone out? When was Always, the last time you went yeah. at a bus stop yeah. and you didn't put, yeah. I could go on. When was the last time yeah. you went to the toilets and you didn't take your phone? Yeah, it's so true. But, but we all do that. And mm. it's because why do we need to not be bored? Mm -hmm. You know, to, to, why, why do we need to be bored? Yeah. So this is, my, this is my number one golden rule I do with all my workshops, all my seminars, and this is a tip I give to leaders for the organizations. It's up to us to create social media boundaries within our organizations where we should have moments and pockets during the week and the day where we interact with no digital devices, no laptops, no phones. And it sounds radical for a lot of people mm -hmm. to go like, but that's, it's very controlling. And I'm like, well, well, hear me out. My friend Lucy, I went to uni with her. She works for the Ministry of Defense in, in, in Paris. And when I go and visit her, she says, tell me what time you're gonna arrive because I can't have my phone. Wow. So I need to make sure I know what time you come. And the reason being is that because of security reasons, they yeah. can't bring their phones in. So they leave their phones out, but they get briefed for hours. They then have conversations and it's super deep and meaningful. Mm -hmm. She says they're really productive because they're really focused. If an organization whose purpose is to make sure we don't get invaded or attacked can deal with not having phones, we can all do that. The problem is that it's become a norm and a normalized and okay to say, oh, I'm taking notes on my phone or on my yeah. laptop, and you're in a meeting and we're being distracted. Mm -hmm. The studies have been made around 
laptops interfering and mobile phones interfering with our intimacy. And I think even just, you know, if you go in for a meeting <clears throat> with somebody and they just put their phone yeah. on the table, yeah. even if they're not going to answer it, or, no. or it just sends a message that, that they're not actually fully in the room, 100%. they're not completely engaged. So there's a study that was made where they took the phone and they compared it when it's on the desk in your backpack in a different room. And what they found is that even if your phone is on your table, upside down, switched off, it still diminishes your memory capacity by 11% and your fluid intelligence by 5%. So what I said to people is, and I, you know, it took me a little, a little while, and then my, my partner was like, it's your church, you should you know, establish your rules. And I said, okay, no mobile phones, no laptops. People panic, and I'm like, trust me, there'll be breaks, you can go and check them, don't worry. But hear me out. And I tell them to study, I give them the context, and so we'll have a box outside, people will leave their phones, leave their laptops. And at first, what you realize, I, I usually stay a bit in silence, and you'll see what people, you know, people are a bit uneasy. Because we're no longer used to having to go, hey, how are you? Yeah. You know? Having normal conversations. No, no, because it's like yeah. you're here. Are we starting? Put the phone down. Yeah. I've been in. I've been in. I've been in. Don't even get me started about mid-year reviews and annual reviews and all this stuff. But what I'll say is, I've been in reviews where I've had bosses in front of me giving my annual review while checking their emails. Wow. And what message is that sending to someone? It's a kind of f you a little bit. Isn't it, but it? it is, you so, know. And, and, I'm, yeah. and I and I have to catch myself. I'll have meetings sometimes with people, you know, younger. Like I'd say that you know, younger generation than me, I guess. And I'm talking, and, and he'll get his phone out. Mm. And so what I do, and I just very polite, I just stop, and I just say, do you need a moment to finish whatever you're doing? And that's totally cool. And I go, and I'm just doing this, like, yeah, I just, I'd rather just have a finish conversation. Finish what you're doing, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. we'll continue what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, but it's because, and, it, and, it's, and I know I sound, like, I sound like a dinosaur, but the reason why I'm doing this is not because I want to control. It's because I also believe that if you want true, deep, meaningful conversations, if you want to increase creativity, collaboration, communication with the team and organizations, you need to create and manufacture those moments. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of what's happening, those moments are becoming fewer and fewer. Here's a scary stat. This is scary. If it doesn't scare you, it I should. should. I'm, I'm, so, I'm prepared. Come so, 61% um, of millennials say that they interact with their mobile phones more often than they do with partners, colleagues, or friends. Wow, that's pretty... Uh... And so... 61%. I think it's 61%. If, 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 it's, if it's not 61%, yeah. it's 36. No, that sounds, that There's sounds. another stat that I confuse. It's 36. It might be 36%. But the point is, even if it's 36%, right, a third, that's a problem. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is that it's not going to be, I'm addicted. Like mm -hmm. on, on average, millennials check their phones 134 times, according to Nokia study. Well, as soon as they started that, doing that screen time thing on uh, yeah. iPhone, suddenly yeah. you go, hold on a minute, I've spent yeah. how long? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, six and a half hours is yeah. the average of how many people spend time on their screen Gosh. outside of work. Wow. Six and a half hours. Yeah. And so you, you go, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that my daughter will grow up and say to me, when you had unlimited access to your phone at work, unsupervised. I mean, I, anyone, if, I don't know if this will be coming out, this, this part of our conversation, but if you, if you watch this, and if you're listening to this, please observe everywhere you go, restaurants, mm -hmm. tube stations, bus stops, waiting lounges. Um, this is the, the one that scares me the most, airport security checks and Eurostar passport controls. Watch how everyone's on their phone. Yeah. Like, like now... Do you think this is something that will change? I mean, I sometimes think there'll <clears> be some sort of weird, like... That, that it's still just a fad, you know, that that's, at some point everybody's going to have this weird backlash against... Gen Z or better. Know. Gen Z or better than millennials. Really? Gen Z, yeah, Gen Z understand the link between mental health and, and mm. digital devices much better than millennials do. And um, when you speak to Gen Z, 
uh, they tend to kind of go, I know I need to put my phone off on airplane mm-hmm. mode so I can do my studies. There tends to be like a better kind of yeah. relationship to... Because it's almost like the smoking of our day. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's kind I, of yeah. the thing that people didn't really realize how bad no, no, it was. No, no, no. I, 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 but I, I, I mean, it's... And I know it's ironic because I'm on my phone all the time. I'm mm-hmm. on Instagram all the time. And I do a lot of stories. I do look on... And I catch myself all the time. And I can guarantee you that the more I use social media, the less good I feel about myself. And there's a correlation. If I don't feel very well, good about myself... I feel insecure. I compare myself to others. I, I'm, I'm pinging my sense of self-worth to the number of likes I've had. I'll go to my remedy. I'll go to my fix. I'll go back to social media. And, and what's happening and what's really scaring me is that we have this sense of we're being more interconnected than ever before, but we are lonelier than ever before. Yeah. You know, we have a department of loneliness that, that was created just, you know, a year ago or so. And so... I didn't know I, that. Yeah, Ministry of Loneliness. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's basically they found studies around how being lonely is just as... Um, dramatic to your health as smoking or sitting. Yeah. You know, it's it's like we're social creatures. When you look mm-hmm. at the top uh, countries who have the uh, the oldest generation people per capita per person, right? They often find like the marks to hit. One of them is um, social connected, so yeah. being connected uh, in community and having having a you know that kind of group of of settings. And I'm not saying ban mobile phones. I love digital devices. I think I forgot Adam. Braun, I think it was, said use social devices to get to a meeting, but then, you know, get rid of them so you can interact as humans. Yeah, well, that's I think that's a good, good bit of advice, really. I yeah. mean, I think it's, a, obviously, that's talking about sort of social media and people being on their phones, and it's, it's sometimes it can be a bit depressing when you yeah. think about it. We're all aware of sort of how long we spend on it. Yeah, but it can be great. Uh, you know, I mean, social it's, media it's can be It's a familiar feeling. What you're saying is probably yeah. resonating with a lot of people. Of course, we, we live in a world, though, where... Yeah. As a brand, if you're not, um, if you don't have a digital presence yeah. and you're not active and you're not doing things, you're almost in danger of sort of not being yeah. relevant. Would yeah. you say that? Would you agree with that? Well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's really interesting that some of my most successful friends financially have a very you know poor kind of social media yeah. uh, following. The difference is that when they want to switch businesses, they'll have to start from scratch. Yeah. So that's just that's just a reality mm-hmm. in terms of like. But what I'll say is this, is that I think where people get overwhelmed with social media is that they believe they have to be on every single platform. Mm-hmm. You know, as you'll know, because you've heard me talk yeah. before, um, I don't believe that's true. I think that actually to stay sane and, and to kind of win at what you do, focus on one. Mm-hmm. Pick a social media platform that you really enjoy, where your people hang out most and go all in on that. Mm-hmm. I think it might sound controversial, people listening to this. I don't think you should be posting 16 times a day across 17 different platforms. And if you don't, then you're going to become irrelevant. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think where can you be most yourself? Where do you feel you can make the biggest difference? Where can you serve people the most? Mm-hmm. And then you can be strategic about it. You know, you can either be like, sometimes I'm like this, I'm frazzled, and I'll just be posting every day on the flow, on the go. Or you can go, hey, I'm gonna spend an hour, I'm gonna mm-hmm. plan my post for the next five days, and, yeah. that's, and that's sorted. Well, you know, I'll, 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 yeah. bolt, I'll bolt kind of do my podcast. Yeah. Um, I, I think where I find it really interesting for me, especially when I, when I talk about, like for example, tomorrow I'm doing a session with an amazing, um, amazing individual who wants to kind of raise his profile and, and establish himself a bit more clearly in terms of positioning as, as a key person of influence, I guess, um, is this idea that the story we make up about who we need to become in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to say, you don't need to become anything. Just trust that who you are is enough. Trust that your story matters. Trust that sharing it will serve. And that by doing it, you'll be clear about what your message is. You'll become 
clear about what you stand for. Mm-hmm. And like, it's really easy for me to say here, like, oh, Ministry of Purpose, we're here to eradicate career misery in the workplace. You know, the unconventionalist is to help you turn your message into a movement. It didn't come like that. I didn't wake up one day and go, oh, yeah, of course. No, it's years. It's you know, evolved, yeah. It evolves. But the problem is if you don't start, you'll never get clear. Yeah. So what I would say to people listening is, is to kind of go, hey, try and move that dial a little bit. Try and yeah. create a bit more and, and f- do what feels right. If it yeah. starts off small, maybe it's a tweet. Maybe it's a, a LinkedIn message. Maybe it's a, an Instagram photo. And mm-hmm. then maybe a YouTube video, an Instagram story. You know, whatever it is. Dip your toe in, test the water. Yeah. Start to just kind of build yourself yeah. up and then start yeah, to do yeah, different yeah. things. 100%. And yeah. then, and then uh, Ira Glass, who is the founder of This American Life, Mm-hmm. has a brilliant video, you can look it up. I think it's, I forgot what it's called, but it's basically like the creativity gap. He explains how we all have a taste of what our talent should be, or what we expect our work to be. And then there's where we are. And that is the biggest killer of creativity of mm-hmm. anything in the world, because we judge so harshly, you know, where we are compared to where we would like to be that we don't even get started. But what happens is that over time, you start getting there. Maybe you raise the bar, but that gap will always be there. You'll mm-hmm. suck. If you don't suck when you start, yeah. then, you know, there's yeah. something wrong about yeah. you. Yeah, we definitely talk about, you know, when you're creating video content, obviously there's a need sometimes to have professionally shot video content yeah. that's kind of your showpiece stuff. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's also about volume. So, you know, yes. you kind of have to be prolific with what you're doing. Yeah. So if that turns into, say, you're a, an entrepreneur yeah. or a business owner, or if yeah. you're a big brand, sometimes you just got to roll your sleeves up yeah. and you, you guys just do it yourselves, you know, just yeah. start putting stuff out, start 100%. doing Facebook lives, <clears throat> just shooting some stuff at events and just starting to put stuff out and building up the personality of your company. Yeah. Because that's what people want to see. I think they it want could to also see be an excuse, the, yeah. if I'm honest, yes. if, I, if, I, if I can be honest for a second, I'll say it, it, it's often an excuse. What mm-hmm. you'll hear is I need to have the perfect production quality. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm not doing it. And actually, really? Is, yeah. Are you sure it's not something? And then when you dig a bit deeper, it's actually the whole things we listed, right? Mm-hmm. Imposter syndrome, who am I? I'm fear, mm-hmm. all this stuff, fear of yeah. failing, fear of looking like an idiot. And what if I, what I say is now forever and I can't delete it, blah, blah, blah. But rarely is it purely because then I said, sure, you're going to do a commercial at yeah. the cinema and maybe, maybe I could be proven right, actually. I'm sure you could get away with like a series of a phone film. I'm sure yeah. people have done it. Yeah. But apart from that, I've seen it so many times, people get stuck because of this idea. Look, hand to heart, I need to, I need to confess, it was the same thing with me and with my mm-hmm. podcast. I, for three years in my podcast, with a dream of, I wanna have a video show. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it because every time I did it, I did pilots where I, I hired you know, a camera guy, mm-hmm. had this whole setup, it was professionally made, you know, looked beautiful. And I was like, well, that means I'm gonna have to hire someone every time. Yeah. I'm not sustainable when it's just mm-hmm. a passion project. And I forgot who told me this, but someone basically said to me, um, you know, you're making up a bunch of excuses. And so I got old iPhones out, got them repaired, and I had these really crappy tripods, so dodgy. And that's why I do my show now. Mm-hmm. I, I brought a guy on my team, uh, Andrew Miller, amazing editor, and he does all the editing of my mm-hmm. show now. So yeah. I send him all the files. He's based out in next Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Turns them around in a few yeah. days, and then that's it. So now I've got a, yeah. a YouTube video show because yeah. I've got these old, it's not, it's amazing though, isn't yeah. it? The iPhones, the quality is yeah. so it's good. good. It's good enough. Like, yeah. of course it's not what I want it to be. It's not the vision and the dream that I have. But God, if I didn't start, then yeah. I, I would have regretted it. I'd have exactly. been really upset, yeah. So have you found that video's been, been helpful for you? <laughs> yeah, oh my God, 100%. Um, my video CV started as a video. 
my, my TEDx talk is, is the biggest lead magnet that I have. I mean, everybody kind of finds me through that. Just those two videos alone are a million views. I mean, video has been an amazing gift for me to be able to, to share a little bit more about who I am, um, get a bit of a taste of, I guess, of, of kind of the work that I do and kind of the impact I have. Um, and I think it's a great, for me, it's a great visual storytelling medium that, so I'm a big fan of podcasts. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. You know, I, I kind of, um, I've had a podcast now for about, is it four years? Five, I don't even know anymore. Four years. And I think it's a brilliant medium. It's a different um, kind of special medium. This video for me is, there's still something that moves me about video mm -hmm. that, you know, I don't think any other medium can, kind yeah. of does. Um, I think because of today's technology, there's no excuses. You could just use your mm -hmm. phone and just film and, and put it out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I launched my first online video course. Yeah. That's video. I mean, yeah, I mean, video. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember a few years ago, there was, I think it was Mark Zuckerberg who said that by 2020, you know, 80% of social media posts will be video. I forgot what it was, maybe five years ago. Yeah. I remember going, yeah, 100% could see that. 100% could see that. I mean, look at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn be pushing video now for a few years. They're really embracing it. Yeah, yeah they love it. I mean, if, mm -hmm. you, if you upload natively on LinkedIn, maybe it's changed now, but at least a year and a half ago, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Like they would just push your content out. And I would remember going, I did a test, I posted on, on Instagram like a, maybe a year ago. I did a test, same video, organically uploaded on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and forgot where. Anyway, compared the stats after a week, LinkedIn blew up everyone. Wow, that's yeah, amazing. But, but, like, but like easy, yeah. easy. The number of views, comments, mm -hmm. reach, it was because they wanted to push content creators yeah. and you know, they hadn't... They're trying to basically yes. make them more of a video platform yeah. Yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you're going to see it. So I think, yeah. um, I think you'd be crazy not to embrace video in some way, shape or form. It, you don't have to do a weekly video, but you should have a YouTube channel with a few videos. One of them should be an interview of you to better understand your story. Uh, a video should be about your customers. You know, for example, this, okay, this is a great one. People who are looking at this are like thinking, oh, we really want to use video, but I'm a bit uncomfortable. Great. Ask your customers. You know, ask your customers, hey, we're doing a campaign and we originally wanted to talk about ourselves, but then we thought that was a bit arrogant. And frankly, no one cares. But what we would love to hear is about your stories and how we might have helped your work or how we might have helped you do what you wanted to do. Would, would you be willing to be one of our case studies? Cool. And then you film them. Yeah. And then you make it about them. And then that becomes a really beautiful way of segueing what you do and why you do. And, but you let your customers, you let your people tell the story for you. Yeah, it's a phenomenally <clears throat> powerful way of um, yeah. Yeah, getting the, the message for your business. Out, I think definitely. so. And it's from, you know, from the horse's mouth. You know, yeah. People will trust your customers a lot more than they're going to trust you when you're talking about 100%, yourself. 100%. 100%. So we live in a digital world. Yeah. If you're a brand, yeah. a business, yeah, entrepreneur, yeah. and you're trying to get an edge, mm. What would be your one piece of advice? Be really clear about why you exist and why it matters. That's the f I mean, you ca I cannot underestimate how many people don't even know how to answer that question. And so people focus on tactics. People focus on channels. People think that their problem is that they don't have a YouTube channel. People think that their problem is that they don't post enough on Instagram. And so they go to the how really quickly. They'll start pouring cash into marketing campaigns and branding, 
but they're not clear about their core, about what they stand for. So the first thing is get really clear about who you are and why that matters. Then get really clear about what are your values. Now, values, you could go with the whole classic, authentic, transparent, honest, you know, accountable. Or you could go about what, what is really what we stand for because it's gonna to filter our customers, it's gonna to filter our partners, it's gonna filter everything we do. Yeah. Get clear about your values. And then you wanna talk about um, how do we communicate that in a way that makes people feel involved and engaged? How do we make it about our people? How do we not make it about us? How do we make it about our people? What I wanna say is this, it's a metaphor. The digital world is a great, great world. It's an amplifier. So what are you amplifying? Are you clear about what you amplify? Because if you're not, imagine broadcasting static noise on a really, really loud speaker. How do you think people are gonna to react to that? They're gonna be put off because it's not clear, it's confusing. So clarify that, just, just make it really simple. And oh yeah, I, I wanna say simplify. I think just keep it really simple, super clear. Yeah. And then what, whatever will excite your people will excite your customers or your audience or your fun, whatever it is that you define as your, as, your, as your customers, right? But I think we really need to bridge the gap between how we show up in the world and how we show up internally. Mm -hmm. My dream is that if I went to an organization, they're exactly who I would expect them to be. The leader is exactly who I thought he would be or she would be because of, I've seen the interviews, I've read the mm -hmm. books, I've read the magazines, I've seen them online, I've seen them on social media. They are exactly who they say. I can't tell you how many times I've met people in real and been surprised at how different they are than who they project themselves to be. So be authentic really is, is a very, very be yourself. Key, key factor. I mean, yeah, I mean, authentic is a word that's really hard, yeah. right? Because it's kind of thrown around, but I just like- Be real. Yeah, be, be real. real, be yourself. Be who you are. Oh yeah. my God, because when you do, it's mm -hmm. so like, oh, I just want to say it's so freeing because you start realizing that I don't need to pretend anymore. I don't need to carry this weight around thinking that I'm not enough, that I need yeah. to be more than who I am. And, and, and people appreciate that. I think people respect more someone, like I've got this great example of Sophie Miller. I don't know why this example came up. <laughs> she might kill me for saying this. But so we, when we stopped, we were designing the, our program we were gonna do together. Uh, we spent like a whole day, like a whole morning, I think it was, brainstorming ideas, all this stuff. And it was lunchtime. And I go, cool, where do you wanna go and eat? Do you wanna go and grab some lunch? She's like, how would you feel about if we both went our separate ways for some lunch and had a bit of our, our, our alone time? And I was like, yes, thank you for like, <laughs> thank you for telling me what you need. Yeah. And I res from that, I mean, I fell in love with her from that moment, but I, I just respected her so much more for it because she was real to who she was. She needed some space to recover. And because I'm with someone who's relatively an introvert, I can be a situational extrovert. I respect that. I get that. But why am I sharing that? It's because she was being real to who she was. Mm -hmm. And being real is compelling. Right, on both extremes. Whether you agree with someone or not, you can't floor someone for, for like, at least you know where that you stand with them. And I think that's what we need more in leaders today, is to be able to say, this is who I am, these are my um, blind spots, this is what I know I'm really good at, this is what I know I suck, and this is what I'm working on, and please do let me know if I, if I, short, if I fall short. I think that's a, a good, um, good, good thing for many of us to do, I think, is to actually like, be honest to, about who yeah. we are and what we want and what we need and not just kind of go with the flow and have built up sort of resentments and things like yeah. this. Are you up for playing a little game before you leave today? Okay, go for okay. it. Um, well, this is a little game, it's called <coughs> Two Truths, One Lie. Okay. okay. So uh, I'm gonna read you three statements, yeah. one of which is a lie. Okay. Uh, and you have to see if you can guess which one is the okay. lie. You up for that? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so statement one. Lie. 
Yeah, no, no, we're not there yet. Um, statement one. So um, Aristotle yeah. was one of the first recorded teachers of oratory and public speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, second fact is a third of UK workers think they can do their boss's job better than them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, and finally, 70% of Britons claim to have a phobia of public speaking, saying it's worse than death itself. I would say first is a lie. The first one, Aristotle. Yeah. yeah. Actually true. What? He's one of the first recorded teachers of public speaking. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I thought, I have a story, I forgot the name. I've got a story with someone else about... Okay, anyway. Well, I'm there we are. I'm shocked. Well, uh, the lie is, in fact, that... Um, I, I'm quite one surprised. Third? Was, uh, well, no, one third of UK workers do think that their bosses can, uh, yeah, they can do their job, boss's job better than them. It's actually... The lie is actually that 70% of Britons claim to have a phobia of public speaking. That stat is only 20%, which what? I was quite surprised by. Nah. I'm quite are surprised sure? by that. Yeah, it's been double fact-checked. 20% wow. of Britons have a phobia of public speaking. I would have thought that was, would have been 10 times more. I think, I think maybe people have a kind of, it depends on what type of public speaking, I guess. I mean, if you're giving a, I don't know, reading at church or, yeah. you know, maybe there's kind of different levels of it. So I have, because I've got a different stat, um, I need to think, I think it was Psychology Magazine or someone like that. I forgot the stat, but it was more people fear public speaking than being buried alive. <laughs> more people well that's probably true actually you, I don't think many people think that? about that though do they <laughs> but I mean that for me is totally bonkers anyway I've lost that mind failed. you I have to say though 20% of mind you that is 20% of Britons claim have a phobia of public speaking yeah. saying it's worse than death itself so there's 20% wow are so I'm, scared I'm surprised of it. fair enough for Aristotle I did not know I thought there was someone else because I, 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 I haven't heard well, we're the not saying well. he's the first ever he's one yeah. of the first recorded. I think there's probably first recorded okay. To be honest with you, that was probably before, you know yeah. before that they didn't have much uh, yeah. many recordings. But I've got some good trivia now for my next Christmas. There you practice. go. Yeah, exactly. We better we better send you the um, the references yeah, so you please, can yeah, make sure 100%. you're kind of quoting them accurately. Well, thanks very much for coming down. It's been great having thanks you so here. Much. It's been awesome. Um, if anyone wants to uh, sort of reach out to you and get hold of you, what's the best way? Yeah, grab, easy, grab really you on easy. Your website. MarkLarue.com and across all social media platforms, the handle is at MarkLarue. That's M-A-R-K-L-E-R-U-S-T-E. If they want to listen to your podcast, they can go yeah. on any of the usual Anywhere places. you listen to your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Google yeah. Play. And it's, it's The Unconventionalist. The Unconventionalist. The yes. most unpronounceable podcast name known to mankind. And hard to spell. And hard to spell. For yeah. a dyslexic, it's a total nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Mark. It's been cool. great. Cheers. Thanks so much. One, two, three. Listen. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and head over to YouTube where you can watch videos for all the interviews in the Big Chat series. All the information you need is in the show notes, but if you can't find them, then just head over to www.smallfilms.com forward slash big hyphen chat.